You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Now that Season 2 of DNA ID is underway, I want to take a minute to thank everyone for the overwhelming support I've received since starting this podcast a year ago. DNA ID has received a lot of positive feedback via social media, word of mouth, and encouraging emails. I'm thrilled that listeners are appreciating the value of the show's straightforward approach and commitment to respectful coverage of the victims of these long, cold cases. Thank you all so much for listening to Season 1. I plan on continuing to bring you more great content in Season 2 with 24 new episodes. I hope that people will continue to recommend DNA ID to other podcast listeners. And speaking of support, a lot of listeners have reached out and asked how they could support DNA ID on Patreon or with a PayPal gift. Although I hadn't planned on setting up either of these options, as my goal has never been and is not to make money with this show— I have to admit that the costs associated with producing the content have been unexpected. In short, most law enforcement agencies and government organizations do not produce documents, reports, or records to podcasters free of charge. And the generosity and offers of support from listeners have made me realize that I don't have to do this alone. So I'd like to announce that if you would like to support the show, you can do so, and I will really appreciate it. You can support DNA ID on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash DNA ID and signing up as a patron. As a patron, you'll be able to listen to every new episode ad free, and you'll receive a personalized letter and sticker in the mail from me as a thank you. And if Patreon isn't your thing, but you'd still like to support the show, you can make a one-time contribution through PayPal by sending your PayPal contribution to the DNA ID email, which is... DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. And for those of you who have requested DNA ID merch, stay tuned. I hope to have an announcement for you soon. It was 1982. Kelly Ann Prosser was an eight-year-old girl living with her mom, new stepdad, and older brother and sister in Columbus, Ohio. September saw the start of a new school year for the third grader at Indianola Elementary. The school was located on East 16th Avenue on the edge of the Ohio State campus in the University District. Ohio State is a huge school, and the campus and its surrounding areas, including fraternity and sorority houses and student and professor residences, was the large footprint that dominated the neighborhood, hence the name University District. Kelly and her family lived in the city, too, on West Tompkins Street on Columbus's north side. The family home was in a densely populated, safe neighborhood. There were kids everywhere, 
and many kids walked to and from Indianola Elementary daily. This fall, Kelly was the only kid in the family left attending Indianola. Her older brother had moved on to middle school, and her older sister was even further ahead. They all had different schools and different schedules. And while Kelly had previously walked to school with both and then one of her siblings, this school year there was no family member to accompany her. So in the mornings, Kelly's mom would take her to school on her way to work. Linda worked as an office assistant at the School of Health, Physical Education, and Recreation on the Ohio State campus nearby. In the afternoons, Linda would pick Kelly up. But on September 20th, a Monday, Linda had a dentist appointment after work. She wanted Kelly to come with her, but Kelly said she wanted to walk home. She was a big girl, she said, and she was very familiar with the route, having made the same walk hundreds of times with her brother and sister. The route Kelly was going to take home was about 15 blocks. It was a straightforward walk, it wasn't that far, and it was in a very public commercial area, almost exclusively along busy High Street, once Kelly got to its intersection with East 16th Avenue, where the school was. There were cafes, storefronts, bustling sidewalks, and intersections that had pedestrian crosswalks and walk signs. There would certainly be other kids from her school walking the same direction. Kelly would be just fine. But she wasn't. That Monday, Kelly didn't come home from school. Her little body, sexually assaulted and strangled, was found in a cornfield days later. Somewhere between school and home, someone took Kelly Prosser. So who was Kelly Ann Prosser? Kelly was the youngest of the three kids born to her mom, Linda. I'm not really clear on where Kelly got her last name, Prosser, because her father was named Marty Hoffman, and her mom was now Linda Garner. Linda and Marty were divorced, and Linda had quite recently remarried. Kelly's new stepdad was named Larry Garner, and Kelly had told her teacher, Barbara Cleveland, that she was excited that her mom had married Larry. Kelly's 11-year-old brother, Keith, was in middle school, and her sister, Christina, was 14. Everyone described Kelly as a very outgoing, bubbly, chatty little girl who loved arts and crafts and swimming at the local pool. She looked up to her sister, Christina, and the two had girly dance parties together. In short, Kelly was a totally normal 8-year-old girl. On the 20th, which, as I said, was a Monday, Linda had packed Kelly off to school for the new school week. Kelly had breakfast and got her stuff together. Because it was supposed to rain, Linda told Kelly to wear her new reversible raincoat, a bright blue one. They left the house around 7.30, and Linda dropped Kelly off at school. On the way, the two discussed the plan for the afternoon, and this is when Kelly convinced her mom to let her walk home rather than going to the dentist. Linda begrudgingly agreed. The area was very safe, and her kids had been making the same walk for years. At school, Kelly had a normal school day. She was her usual bubbly self. Nothing seemed to be distressing or worrying her. Kelly's teacher, Miss Cleveland, said that Kelly helped out by watering the plants in the classroom. At the end of the school day, at 3.30 p.m., she set out to walk home. The walk home should not have taken Kelly long. It was a total distance of 1.1 miles. Google Maps said it would take someone 23 minutes to walk it. So even allowing extra time for an 8-year-old's meandering... Kelly should have been home in about a half hour, right around 4 o'clock. Kelly's new stepdad, Larry, was at home that day. He had gotten laid off from his job and so was at home at the West Tompkins Street house he now shared with his wife and the three Prosser kids. Christina and Keith both came home straight from school. But no one thought anything of it when Kelly didn't come in the front door. Linda had a dentist appointment at 4 o'clock that day, and as far as Larry and Christina knew, the plan was for Kelly to go to the dentist with Linda. Only Linda and Kelly knew about the changed plan for Kelly to walk home. 
So Larry assumed that Linda had picked Kelly up at school and taken the little girl along with her to the dentist. It wasn't until Linda got home from this appointment that anyone said, where's Kelly? And by that point, whoever took Kelly had a significant head start. There was no phone in Linda and Larry's house. Linda rushed over to her mom's house, which was right behind her house, and used the phone to call the school. Then she and her mom got in the car and drove over to Indianola Elementary. No sign of Kelly. They started driving the route that Linda and Kelly had agreed that Kelly would take, Olentangy Street to North High Street to West Tompkins. They half expected to see Kelly dilly-dallying or chatting with a friend, but there was no sign of her. Starting to become frantic, Linda pulled over next to a Columbus PD squad car that was sitting on the street. She told the officers that her little girl hadn't come home from school and she couldn't find her. The officers told her that they would patrol the area looking for Kelly, but that she needed to go home and call in an official missing persons report to the Juvenile Missing Persons Division at the CPD. This was protocol at the time. By the time Linda got home to her mom's and called 911, it was 6 p.m. By 6.02 p.m., Officer Dodd had transmitted Kelly's description over the police wire. White female, 4 foot 6 inches tall, 74 pounds, brown hair, green eyes. All Columbus PD officers were alerted to the missing little girl. The car that Linda had talked to radioed in that they were already looking for Kelly. While they waited, Linda was at her mom's house on the phone, calling all Kelly's school friends, her teacher, and other family members. Larry and Christina sat in their house in case Kelly showed up. She didn't. By 9 p.m., the missing child description was rebroadcast over the police radios to underscore that she was still missing. And around 9 o'clock a.m. the next day, police released the missing girl's description to the local news media so they could alert the public to be on the lookout for Kelly. They reported widely that the child had last been seen leaving school wearing a blue raincoat, jeans, and a white and pink flowered blouse. Columbus police took Kelly's disappearance seriously. Of course, in the initial hours, they may have assumed that the little girl would show up. That happens all the time, that kids absentmindedly go to a friend's house, get distracted, and lose track of time or whatever. But when she hadn't shown up by dark and none of her friends had seen her, it became apparent that this was not the case. Police commenced formal searches for Kelly. They set up a command post and conducted ground searches, including along the Olentangy River near the Doddridge Street Bridge. The Columbus Dispatch reported, quote, A large organized search for Kelly by police and volunteers was launched in an area bounded by East North Broadway, Indianola Avenue, East 11th Avenue, and Olentangy River Road. Aided by a German Shepherd police dog, they searched vacant buildings, garbage cans, and trash dumpsters. People who knew Kelly pitched in, helping by walking their neighborhoods and scouring them for any sign of her. Meanwhile, Kelly's mom, Linda, told police that her kids had been walking to school for years and shopkeepers along the route might recognize Kelly. And sure enough, talking to shopkeepers on Tuesday, police found a woman near 18th Avenue who told them that she saw a little girl she believed to be Kelly looking in her storefront window between 3.30 and 4 p.m. on the 20th. She said the little girl was wearing a little blue raincoat and she ID'd Kelly from a photo police showed her. Police have never 100% verified this sighting, but it makes sense given the timing and the route that it was Kelly. If so, Kelly was walking her usual route and had made it at least that far, about halfway home. According to the Columbus Dispatch, quote, Kelly was seen at 3.30 p.m. walking westbound on East 16th Avenue near the corner of East 16th Avenue and North High Street by her third grade classmates. 
Kelly also was last seen at the intersection of Lane Avenue and North High Street walking home that day. According to the dispatch, the canines were able to track Kelly from her school, but lost her scent near North High Street and Maynard Avenue. This means that Kelly had made it about four-fifths of the way home. East Maynard Avenue is just three blocks from Kelly's house. Somewhere in that final three blocks, she vanished. But no one saw anything. This was unusual because North High Street would have been very busy at that time of day, with shoppers, students, people sitting at cafes and bars, passing cars, and kids everywhere. Tips started coming in to the CPD after the Tuesday morning news stories aired about Kelly. Officers ran them all down. They questioned Kelly's biological father, who had called the CPD and told them that Kelly was not with him. They talked to her teacher and some of Kelly's friends. One of these recently posted on WebSleuths that she was supposed to walk with Kelly that day, but hadn't for some reason. But Kelly's family doesn't recall a plan between Kelly and her friend to walk together. Lots of kids walked home in the same direction as Kelly and often formed a group that would diminish in size as kids peeled off toward their own houses. And remember, some of them had seen Kelly, and we know she was working her way north, seen by the shopkeeper on 18th, seen by classmates at North High and Lane Streets, and smelled by the dogs at North High and Maynard. After that, nothing. We have to wonder if perhaps her abductor was following her along her route, waiting for her to be isolated, waiting for the right moment to snatch her off the street, into his car, and away. Police confirmed that they believed Kelly had been taken away from the area in a vehicle. By Tuesday afternoon, after searching the entire north side throughout the night and most of the day, police openly said that they believed Kelly was abducted. Detective Bob Souls of the CPD Juvenile Bureau told the media, quote, My hunch is she has been picked up by someone. I assume now that she has been abducted. One of the people who heard the news broadcast about the missing eight-year-old from Columbus was a woman named Lisa Richmond. Lisa lived in Plain City in Madison County, about 30 minutes outside the Franklin County city where Kelly was last seen. And Lisa called into the CPD because she had a tip. This was at 845 on Tuesday night, the 21st. Kelly had been missing for more than 24 hours. Lisa told the officers that her father, a respected probate attorney named Charles Richmond, had been driving to pick up the family's housekeeper on rural A.W. Wilson Road around 845 that morning. Charles saw a blue piece of clothing in the road. When his car passed over it, it flew up into the air. He drove on, but once he picked up Clara, the housekeeper, and they were making their way back, they saw that it was still there. The little bright blue raincoat just looked so incongruous on the black roadway, snaking through the tall, pale green cornfields. Charles got out of the car and picked up the raincoat, which was fairly new. It did not have a name tag in it or anything that could identify the owner, who was clearly a child. Nothing was in the pockets except a metal bolt. Clara set the raincoat on the car floor, and there it stayed. That night, Lisa got home from her community college classes and rode with her mother as she drove Clara home. Lisa noticed the little raincoat on the car floor. They assumed it had been thrown out of a school bus by some rowdy kids. She and her mom urged Clara to take it for her little nieces. After they dropped Clara off, they started chatting, and Lisa's mom told her the bad news she'd seen on TV that day about a little girl who was missing in Columbus. When she got home, Lisa found a newspaper article about Kelly Prosser, and in it, a description of what the missing little girl was wearing, a reversible blue raincoat. 
Lisa called the Columbus PD, who was very interested in what she had to tell them. She and her dad arranged to meet detectives at a local McDonald's. The detectives followed the Richmonds to Clara's house and collected the raincoat. Then Charles showed the investigators where exactly on A.W. Wilson Road he had found it, about a mile west of U.S. Route 42 and five miles south of Plain City. The detectives drove back to Columbus, raincoat in hand. They arranged for Linda to come down to the fire station to view it. Because the media was staking out the Prosser house and following the family members around, firefighters had to form a human barricade around Linda to protect her from the screaming reporters and flashbulbs. This was around 11.30 Tuesday night. Sadly, Linda identified the raincoat as Kelly's. She was sure her daughter had been wearing it the day she vanished. She told the Fifth Floor podcast that this is when she knew that Kelly was never coming home. Per the Columbus Dispatch, a Columbus police homicide sergeant stated that there appeared to be smears of blood on the right sleeve of the little blue coat. The Richmonds hadn't noticed it. It was just a small amount, and it was hard to see against the blue of the fabric, but it was there. Now, at least, investigators had somewhere specific to look for Kelly. Officers, canines, and detectives converged on A.W. Wilson Road in the dark and started searching. Charles and Lisa went too, but they left when Lisa started to feel uneasy. Cops searched until about 2.15 a.m., calling out for Kelly, but there was no answer, and in the pitch-black conditions, blindly searching was counterproductive. They called off the search at 2.15 a.m. and reconvened the next morning. It was a large search operation manned by officers from Columbus Police, Franklin County and Madison County Sheriff's deputies, Ohio State Highway Patrol, and police dogs from Upper Arlington. They picked up where they had left off the night before, guided by the dogs, a helicopter, and foot patrols running grid searches. But they didn't find Kelly there. She was found because of an observant state trooper. At 1.09 p.m., Ohio State Patrol Trooper Bryant was driving to join the search parties at the spot where the raincoat had been found. And on his way, he observed tire tracks pulling into the edge of the cornfield. He parked his cruiser and got out, and on a closer look, caught a glimpse of a child's body through the corn rows. This was about 10 rows from the roadside in the cornfield abutting A.W. Wilson Road. It was about a half mile from the spot where the raincoat lay in the road. The child was lying on her back. Of course, it was believed to be Kelly. Linda confirmed that the little dead body was her daughter at the morgue in Columbus. When police notified Kelly's family of her death, Kelly's sister Christina had to be restrained as she ran screaming from the home. The first responders who found Kelly commented to the media that there were no obvious wounds to her body. She was clothed, wearing her shirt, pants, socks, and shoes, but her underwear and pants were partially pulled down. According to the dispatch, the Madison County Sheriff said that Kelly was fully clothed with her shoes, socks, pants, and underwear on. There were no obvious signs of gunshot wounds or knife wounds, and investigators were not sure how long she had been there. The coroner ruled that Kelly had been strangled. Her cause of death was lack of oxygen to the brain. Marks around Kelly's neck indicated that a rope or a piece of fabric was used to strangle her, and... Some investigators formed the disturbing theory that the item used was actually Kelly's own blue raincoat. Little Kelly had also been beaten on the head. Bumps and bruises were found on her head and hands. Per the dispatch, Kelly's autopsy by the Madison County Coroner revealed that marks from a blunt instrument were found in Kelly's anal region. There was also evidence that she had been otherwise sexually assaulted. Semen was found inside her and in her underwear. 
The time of death was not specified in the autopsy report, but we know the possible time frame. Kelly was almost certainly abducted before 4 o'clock p.m., the time when she should have arrived home, and we know the raincoat was in the road at 8.45 a.m. the next day. That's a 16-hour, 45-minute window of time between when Kelly was taken and when she was lying dead in the cornfield. Kelly's father, Marty Hoffman, talked to the Akron Beacon Journal, saying he hoped his daughter didn't suffer. He said, quote, I can't imagine the terror she went through, eight years old, grabbed off the street by some guy. It's horrible to think about. Kelly's mom, Linda, refused to attend her daughter's funeral in complete denial about what was going on until someone made her. Even then, she demanded that the casket remain closed. She could not bring herself to look inside it until after everyone had gone. There was her little girl lying as if asleep, but she would never be awake again. Kelly was buried in Union Cemetery, a pink spray of flowers lying on her gold and white casket. Is something interfering with your happiness? Do you wish you had someone you could talk to in a safe and private environment? Check out betterhelp.com DNA like I did. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, or you can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room or trek to a counselor's office. And they make it easy and free to change counselors if need be. It's so convenient. Plus, it's actually more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And financial aid is available for those in need. BetterHelp service is available for clients worldwide. You can find the particular expertise you need. You don't need to limit yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, sleeping, trauma, anger, and so on. Anything you share is 100% confidential. Check out the testimonials posted daily on their site at betterhelp.com DNA. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting for additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com DNA. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DNA. My name is John Lorden, and I've been looking into hundreds of unsolved mysteries over the past five years on my YouTube channel, Lorden Arts. And I've been known to bring a respectful, victim-focused approach to the stories that I cover while donating thousands of dollars directly to those cases and the charities that help them. Now, I'm bringing that approach and sensibility, along with some of the biggest mysteries I've ever looked into and some new ones, to a weekly podcast called seriously mysterious from bizarre occurrences to unsolved murders and unexplainable disappearances everything is fair game on this show as long as it's seriously mysterious you can find seriously mysterious on your favorite podcatchers or by visiting seriouslymysterious.com let's look into the mysterious together Kelly's case was officially ruled a homicide under the auspices of the Columbus Division of Police. The Madison County Sheriff's Office assisted with regard to the investigation into the residents of the area surrounding where Kelly was found, but CPD kept the case because it was believed that Kelly was abducted in their jurisdiction. The spot where Kelly was found was very far away from where she was picked up. 
It was west of Columbus, out in farm country, five miles north of Plain City. The spot was just east of 3625 A.W. Wilson Road. And the location was also quite a distance, at least a mile, from the closest highway entrance to U.S. Route 42. There were only 11 homes on this stretch of A.W. Wilson Road between Route 42 and Lafayette Plain City Road. A.W. Wilson was a remote country road that was straight enough that, at night, you could see cars coming for miles. Someone had taken the time to drive all the way out here and hide Kelly in the corn, which was at peak height, about 10 rows back so that she was not visible from the road. The spot seemed terribly random, or perhaps familiar to the killer. Some detectives came to believe that the killer had deliberately left the raincoat in the road where it would be found, knowing it would lead to the body. No one wanted to think about what would have happened if she hadn't been found before the harvesters arrived to cut down the tall corn stalks. There were not a lot of clues for investigators to go on. The Madison County Sheriff said that tire tracks in a neighboring field appeared to be related to farm work rather than a suspect's vehicle. Per an October 13, 1982 dispatch article, Columbus police announced that the FBI had not found any fingerprints that would help identify Kelly's killer. As quoted from the article, police said clothing from Kelly's body was sent to the FBI crime lab. Police were looking for the suspect's fingerprints on Kelly's clothing. The FBI used a laser device to try to find fingerprints from the clothes. The tests on Kelly's clothes were inconclusive, and the FBI didn't find anything of value. Police also said that there was no evidence to indicate whether the killer wore gloves. This is a little confusing. I assume it means they didn't find fingerprints, but they don't know whether that was just bad luck or the killer disguised them with gloves. In other words, the police had nothing. Other than a few sightings of Kelly on her walk home from school, there were no clues to what had happened to her. According to The Fifth Floor, which is a Columbus Division of Police podcast that featured Kelly's case, and which I highly recommend, police got sidetracked at the beginning of Kelly's case because they already had a potential suspect. Several tips had been called in pointing to one guy, and he was someone police already had on their radar. Walter Mitchell Jr., age 63, was wanted for a sexual assault of an 11-year-old girl that had been reported on Sunday, September 19th, just the day before Kelly was taken. This had occurred in Whetstone Park of Roses on the north side of Columbus. The victim was a friend of Mitchell's five grandkids, and she had been in the park on a picnic with him and the grandkids on that Sunday. We don't know exactly what Mitchell did, but he was wanted for gross sexual imposition after the 11-year-old's mother discovered what had happened and called Columbus police on Monday morning. He hadn't been arrested because police couldn't find him. But that wasn't all. Once Kelly went missing, two Columbus police officers reported that they had seen a man matching Walter Mitchell's description holding hands with a little girl who looked like Kelly near North High Street on Monday night. This would have been just hours after Kelly was last seen and was in the area where she was known to have been walking. Both of these officers picked Mitchell out of a photo lineup and identified him as the man they had seen with the little girl. Furthermore, They found out via a tip that the 11-year-old sexual assault victim from the park on Sunday probably knew Kelly Ann Prosser. And the icing on the cake? Walter Mitchell lived in Kelly's neighborhood at 2479 Findlay Avenue. Police tracking dogs tracing Kelly's scent from High Street went right to Mitchell's house's front porch and then his back gate. And a neighbor of Mitchell's reported that she had seen him carrying something heavy wrapped in a black trash bag out of his home. 
Walter Mitchell was looking like a very viable suspect. Even though they couldn't find Mitchell, police were able to interview his wife. She told them that Mitchell had suddenly left for West Virginia, where he had family. He had told her that an extended family member was ill, but he didn't give her any details about who or where exactly he was going. She wasn't even exactly sure when he had left, she said. This was even more suspicious. Police thought Mitchell had likely split town after assaulting the 11-year-old on Sunday and now possibly abducting Kelly Prosser on Monday. Police went to Mitchell's workplace and auto garage. They confirmed that he was at work on Monday, but surprise, surprise, he left early. His boss recalled he had received a phone call at work before he took off. When he left around 3.25 p.m., he was agitated, and he had not come in for his Tuesday shift. So Mitchell was unaccounted for at the time Kelly vanished. The circumstantial evidence was mounting against Mitchell. It was enough for police to get a search warrant for his house, and the FBI assisted in tracking down the vehicle that he had driven to West Virginia, which was found parked in a rural location. Nothing relating to Kelly was found. And Mitchell's daughter told police that her dad was with her on that Monday until about 5.30 p.m. After that, he had gone to West Virginia. If she was to be believed, Mitchell would have had to have abducted Kelly right as he left work and before he got home to see his daughter, or after 5.30 when she believed he left town. It was unlikely. Mitchell heard that the cops were looking at him for a missing and murdered child, and on Thursday, the 23rd, he returned to Columbus and turned himself in to the police. He said he had left town because on Monday, his wife had called him at work, the phone calls he received, and told him that the police had left their calling card at their front door. They were looking for him in connection with the Sunday sexual assault of the 11-year-old girl in the park. Because he already had a record and knew he would be in big trouble, he decided to get out of Dodge. He headed to West Virginia to lay low at the home of a relative. Of course, Mitchell denied doing anything to the 11-year-old girl at the park. He said he was never alone with her, and he said flat out he had never seen Kelly Prosser, didn't know who she was, and had no idea what happened to her. He got himself a pretty good defense lawyer, a William Abraham, who told the Columbus Citizen Journal that, quote, I can and I will verify beyond a shadow of a doubt that my client was nowhere near Columbus when the terrible incident occurred. I can say that this is one of the few times in my career that I have a man as a client who is so totally innocent. The investigator's case against Mitchell was showing some cracks. His supervisor confirmed that he left his job at 3.25 p.m. that day, but his wife said that she was with him from the time he returned home from work until he dropped her off at the J.C. Penney Catalog Distribution Center on Scarborough Boulevard and I-70 on the far east side of Columbus. Mitchell told police that when he dropped her off, he then drove east on I-70, heading to West Virginia. He drove straight there. And the timeline of a phone call he made to his wife once he arrived there backed this up. Police verified a collect call that came into his wife that night from a gas station in Mineral Wells, West Virginia, at 7.41 p.m., and another late that evening from Charleston, West Virginia. And at least a couple of people in Mitchell's family confirmed that they saw him in West Virginia on Monday night. They couldn't really make the timeline of the Prosser abduction fit with Mitchell's movements on the 20th. And there were more bits of evidence that tended to exonerate Mitchell, which were a man came to police headquarters and identified himself as the man the two police officers had seen holding hands with a little girl on Monday afternoon. The little girl was his granddaughter. The officers who identified Mitchell as the man they had seen were mistaken. 
The woman, neighbor, who had seen Mitchell with a heavy black trash bag recanted her story, saying she was no longer sure of what she had seen and when. The canines had not found any scent of Kelly in Mitchell's car or home. The handler told police that the dog could have smelled Kelly's scent on Mitchell's front porch from any time in the past two weeks. Remember, she lived in his neighborhood. So police could not link Mitchell to Kelly Prosser. Prosecutors went ahead and charged him with the molestation of the 11-year-old. He was convicted and sentenced to 10 years. His only other known crimes were a 32-year-old record for B&E and five public intoxication charges in the past few years. He had no history of sex crimes other than the 11-year-old in the park. Note that a dispatch article from 1983 openly says that jurors on the Mitchell trial ignored the judge's orders that they were not to be influenced by the fact that he had been a suspect in the Prosser case. Mitchell's name had been all over the media, and the jury convicted him on the molestation of the 11-year-old girl despite the lack of witnesses or physical evidence. He was guilty by association. Mitchell served his time and was released from prison in August of 1988. He died in 2004. One thing that came out in Mitchell's trial was that his defense had hired a PI who located a witness who lived in a rural area 30 miles south of Columbus. She said that on the day Kelly was abducted, she heard a little girl screaming, don't touch me, and saw a man in a red pickup truck and a little girl with him. The woman said she never called the tip in because the driver of the truck looked right at her and she was scared he'd come after her. Mitchell's defense lawyer, for obvious reasons, passed this information on to the police. Per the dispatch, quote, Police acknowledged that they didn't reveal the existence of this eyewitness to the public, but now say that the man seen coaxing Kelly into his red pickup truck did not match the description of the North Side man who had been a murder suspect in the Kelly and Prosser case. They were talking about Mitchell. We don't know if this sighting was actually Kelly and her abductor, but we do know that the description didn't match Mitchell because he did not kill Kelly Prosser. Kelly's case terrified the Columbus community because it wasn't the first child murder that had taken place in that city in recent years. In 1980, just two years earlier, another eight-year-old girl was abducted and killed. Asenath Dukat, known as Sini, disappeared on June 3rd after leaving Barrington Elementary School in Upper Arlington. She started her 12-block walk home at 3.10 p.m. She was last seen at a crosswalk three blocks from her school on Waltham Road around 3.20. Sini was reported missing by her parents at 4.34 p.m. when she failed to come home. Just hours later, her body was found, fully clothed, in a creek bed one block from her house. She had been killed by a blow to the head that crushed her skull. The murder weapon was a rock. Sini had also been strangled and sexually assaulted. Her case is unsolved. Columbus police now know for a fact that Sini's and Kelly's cases are not related. But at the time, it certainly seemed that Columbus's children were being picked off. This ominous feeling was bolstered by an abduction attempt on another eight-year-old girl. This one took place just three days before Kelly was killed and was the reason that Columbus PD sprang into action so quickly when Kelly vanished. On September 17th, a heavyset bearded man in an older model red pickup truck with a camper shell had grabbed a little eight-year-old girl off the street on Columbus's north side. Luckily, a good Samaritan driving by witnessed the abduction and chased the truck, which was a Chevy pickup, until the driver stopped and pushed his intended victim out. He sped off and has never been identified. 
The witness said he was in his 40s or 50s, but police were never able to track him down. So all these incidents caused quite a bit of concern in Columbus, needless to say. As we saw in the April Tinsley case, which I covered in episode 21 of season one, while some people in the community were supportive of Kelly's family, others blamed them for what had happened. Linda Prosser received hate mail, accusing her of being a negligent parent for allowing Kelly to walk home from school. She was harassed by callers both at home and at work. And she overheard conversation after conversation in public places where people didn't know her, by people blaming her for her daughter's fate. It made the family's tragedy all the more unbearable. And making matters worse was that the police were out of leads. They had failed to turn up anyone who witnessed anything on that Monday afternoon, other than the false sightings of the man and his granddaughter. It was believed that Kelly must have been taken into a car, but no one saw the little girl getting into a vehicle, much less being thrown into one while struggling or screaming. Linda told police that she didn't think Kelly would accept a ride from a stranger, but she was a friendly and trusting little girl, so then again, maybe she would. Stranger danger wasn't quite the thing back then as it is today. Of course, police looked hard at the family and their friends and acquaintances. They weren't sure whether Kelly knew her abductor, but they thought that if she did, that could explain how she was spirited away so quietly and quickly. She had simply gone with someone she knew. But one by one, Larry, Kelly's stepdad, her biofather, and other relatives were ruled out. Neighbors and co-workers and others who moved in the Prosser family circles were eliminated. There was just not a lot to go on. According to the dispatch in an article dated November 11, 1982, quote, Columbus police admitted that they are stymied in their search for the killer of eight-year-old Kelly Ann Prosser. A sergeant on the homicide squad believes that a confession will be the only way the Kelly Ann Prosser murder case will ever be solved. But he added that this is not a type of crime that a killer would brag about. Ohio Crime Stoppers featured Kelly's case to try to generate some tips, and it worked, sort of. Some of this information is taken directly from the fifth floor. It is not the kind of information that would be published in the media because none of the suspects were linked to Kelly in any tangible way. But there were numerous viable suspects over the 38 years that this case remained unsolved. Detective Dana Kroom, who eventually closed this case, told me that there were at least four suspects over the years whom detectives believed were the one. Each of them proved not to have done it. The fifth floor shares some of the information about these suspects, but does not name names. I have used their names only if they were published in the mainstream media. An anonymous informant made multiple calls to Crime Stoppers purporting to have information about Kelly's case. Investigators spent hours and hours interviewing him, but eventually they determined that the information he claimed to have was publicly available, and he was a serial tipster with mental illness who had called in fake information on a number of different cases. He was just wasting everyone's time. Some other potential suspects looked good, especially four who were eventually nailed for other crimes. The fifth floor says that there were two suspects who were put away for murder, one on child porn charges, and one for multiple rapes he confessed to. All were ruled out in Kelly's case. Then there was a new suspect, although he was dead. A man's family called the police and said that this man had committed suicide, but before he did, he confessed to killing Kelly. And this was believable because he had ties to her. His child used to play with Kelly, and so did his former roommate's child. According to friends, he was in the area at the time Kelly was abducted, and he lived nearby. Shortly before Kelly's murder, he was accused of molesting his own daughter. 
Rumors were that Kelly was a witness to this and was going to be asked to give evidence against him after he was arrested for this crime. He killed himself after he was arrested for the molestation of his child. After his death, police conducted a full-scale investigation trying to establish a connection between this man and Kelly Prosser. They interviewed his family, his co-workers, his friends, and neighbors. They could not establish anything concrete, but he remained on the maybe list. Years later, detectives exhumed him and conducted DNA tests on his corpse. It wasn't him. Kelly's former babysitter was killed in a domestic violence situation in the mid-1980s. Her partner who killed her wrote in and claimed to have information on Kelly's case, but he, too, was ruled out when he proved to be lying. One guy who was in the local jail confessed to killing Kelly. A DNA test ruled him out. Detective Ron Custer, who worked the case for over a decade with the cold case unit, decided to focus on the area where Kelly had been found. It just seemed too random to be, well, random. It was very far from where Kelly was picked up, and it was a rural, low-population area not near the highway. Detective Custer suspected that Kelly's abductor had some connection to the area. And they discovered that a sex offender had lived in a farmhouse right near the cornfield where Kelly was hidden. He had a record of sex crimes such as indecent exposure. And he was a sanitation worker whose job brought him into Columbus, near where Kelly was abducted. He had access to a truck that he drove for his job. Detectives spoke to his co-workers, who could not recall whether he had been at work on the day Kelly was taken. And his time card, which showed that he did go to work that day, was handwritten and could very easily have been doctored. This all looked very suspicious to investigators, and they sat down to talk to this man. He denied taking Kelly and stuck to his story that he was at work that day. This suspect agreed to take a polygraph, and he passed. Detectives were flabbergasted. They didn't rule him out, but other than proximity and familiarity with the area and his criminal history, they didn't have anything tying him to Kelly. Then he died. Detectives were so convinced it was him that they were about to seek voluntary DNA samples from his surviving family members to compare to the killer's DNA when there was a big break in this case. Anyway, as you can hear, there were lots and lots of persons of interest and even actual suspects in Kelly's case. One of the detectives said there was a staggering number of people who looked good, but were one by one ruled out. Some of them remained on the list until DNA technology evolved and was available to eliminate those who had been on the suspect list for years. Okay, you've heard me say a number of times that DNA from the killer was used to eliminate several suspects. Swabs taken from Kelly's body at autopsy were preserved in evidence for decades. They included samples of seminal fluid that were found on her person. Her little clothing items and shoes were kept, too, in sealed boxes in the evidence room. In 2003, with Kelly's case dormant, Detective Custer submitted some of the physical evidence for new analysis. Updated technology was able to extract a partial male DNA profile from semen found on Kelly's underwear. Detectives had a momentary surge of hope, but the profile was insufficient for entry into CODIS, which requires a very specific number of loci to run the search. However, it was sufficient to eliminate many possible suspects. Walter Mitchell was exhumed so his DNA could be compared. Nope, not him. The guy who had confessed was exhumed as well. Not him either. Who was it? On September 21, 2014, Detective Custer worked with Crime Stoppers to feature Kelly's unsolved case as the crime of the week. They were hoping that after all those years, someone would be more comfortable talking about what they knew. 
and it worked, but only partially. I'll get into that later. Also in 2014, the BCI was able to extract a complete male profile from the small semen sample in Kelly's underwear. This time, the sample was sufficient for a CODIS search, and once again, detectives got their hopes up. Once again, they were dashed. There were no hits. And a familial search of the Ohio database, which required top-level approval and thousands of dollars in funding, also failed to yield any results. Whoever Kelly's killer was, neither he nor any of his close relatives were in the Ohio system. Detective Dana Kroom worked with Detective Custer for years and took over the case in 2016. He grew up in the area and was determined to solve Kelly's murder. And soon, science would be on his side. In 2019, Columbus cold case detectives received permission to utilize two new investigative tools to solve Kelly's case. One was a fact-driven podcast broadcasting the details of the case in hopes of reaching a wider audience to generate tips. The result of this is the podcast I had been referencing, The Fifth Floor. It's hosted by actual police officers. The goal of the podcast is to bring stories to the public in hopes of generating tips on cold cases, But in this case, tips proved fruitless. Investigators had to turn to cold, hard science. In fact, Kelly's case was solved while the podcast episodes on her case were underway, so it is a fascinating and detailed listen. It contains lots of recorded interviews with the family and investigators. If you're interested in this case, I'd highly recommend it. They chose Kelly's case to highlight in the CPD's new podcast because it was so near and dear to pretty much everyone in the department. Columbus Deputy Police Chief Greg Bodker told the Columbus Dispatch that it was the one case every detective and investigator that had worked on felt a personal connection with and a desire to close. Quote, this little girl's name came up with everyone I talked to, whether it be a scientist at the crime lab, an administrator, detectives, Bodker said. They all say it's the one they really wanted to solve before they retired. And the other new tactic that the investigators decided to adopt was the one that would solve the case. Of course, I'm talking about forensic genealogy. In March of 2020, the CPD cold case unit hired Advanced DNA, a forensic genealogy research company, to try to identify Kelly's killer from his DNA. The BCI sent another sample from Kelly's evidence file to a lab in Oklahoma, which performed the requisite testing to isolate a DNA profile suitable for forensic genealogy. Then it was uploaded to GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. Advanced DNA later said in a statement, quote, In Kelly's case, there were no close matches. Instead, leads were developed through connecting a series of third cousins. Amanda Reno, one of the founders of Advanced DNA, which was established in 2019, worked with her partner Cheryl Hester on Kelly's case. They were able to connect the DNA in the sample to several third cousins of a family, which came primarily from West Virginia and was Caucasian. This family was associated with two surnames. One of these was Petrie, and one was Jarrell. Using other factors like age, geographic location, and personal histories, Detective Dana Kroom and Sergeant Terry McConnell, who both work in the cold case unit, developed a family tree. It pointed to three brothers named Jarrell. Jarrell, Jarrell, why did that name ring a bell? The Columbus Division of Police had digitized all their records, even the ones from as far back as Kelly's case, by 2016. So detectives were able to load the Jarrell name into their system and run a search of the entire case file. Remember that I mentioned a 2014 Crime Stoppers tip that sort of worked. 
After Detective Custer's renewed Crime Stoppers effort that year, an anonymous tip was called in by a woman naming a man as the person who killed Kelly. The man's name, according to the caller, was Warren Jarrells. He had died in Las Vegas, but the caller didn't know when. She also gave the name of a partner of this Jarrells, and she had a beef with both of them over some money she said they stole from her. At the time of this tip in 2014, Jarrells was not a name that had ever come up before in the investigation. The tipster had given very little information, just the name, and that he had died in Vegas at some point. And detectives could not interview the Crime Stoppers caller either because it was an anonymous tip called into the call center. Detective Custer contacted the other witness named by the caller, but that person had limited information. So the Jarrell's name was added to the fairly long list of potential suspect names that had not been cleared, but since the caller said he was dead and investigators couldn't find anything tying him to Kelly, it just sat there. The misspelling of his name by the tipster and the use of a middle name instead of his first name resulted in detectives never putting together this name with the name of someone who had spent time in prison for a crime in Columbus. If they had had a little more information, they would have been able to figure out that the subject of the tip was a child sex offender who was from the Columbus area, Harold Warren Jarrell, one of the three Jarrell brothers the forensic genealogy pointed to six years later. As Detective Custer said of Harold Warren Jarrell, quote, he was not anywhere near the top of the list. In fact, he wasn't on the list at all. But now, in 2020, he was the list. On June 26, 2020, Columbus Deputy Police Chief Greg Bogker held a press conference. The killer of Kellyanne Prosser had been identified after 38 years and thousands of man-hours. The genetic evidence incontrovertibly pointed to a Harold Warren Jarrell as the killer of Kelly Prosser, and he had been dead for years. Let's take a look at who Kelly's killer was. Harold Warren Jarrell, who went by his middle name Warren, was born in Columbus, Ohio on March 22, 1929, to parents Carlos Jarrell from West Virginia and Myrtle Carroll from Ohio. Jarrell had six siblings, of which two were boys, Benjamin and Edwin. They are all deceased now. Records from this far back, nearly 100 years, are spotty, but they show that in 1931, the Jarrell family moved back to West Virginia, where Carlos's family was from. They moved back and forth between the two states a number of times and finally settled in central Ohio. Jarrell reportedly attended Clear Fork High School in Belleville, Ohio, for a time. He enlisted in the Marines on October 1, 1946. I found that during two different enlistment periods, he had short-term stations in Paris Island, South Carolina, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, Norfolk, Virginia, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, Gibraltar, Spain, Portugal, Africa, Malta, Italy, France, England, Newfoundland, Iceland, and China. Whew. Over the course of his life, Jarrell was married to or in long-term relationships with at least four women and had children with at least two of them. There are records showing that he got married on July 2, 1946, in West Virginia. He was 17 years old. The couple separated after nine days of marriage, yes, nine days, but did not get an official divorce for two years. While he was still in that marriage, Jarrell entered the Marine Corps on October 1, 1946. And while in the service and still married to his first wife, Harold married again in South Carolina on March 29, 1947. Yes, he was married to two women whom I am not naming at once. No one knows whether they knew about each other. 
Harold and his new wife settled in Ohio and had several kids. His divorce from wife number one was finalized in Roanoke, Virginia, in September 1948. The grounds cited by her were desertion. Meanwhile, Jarrell and wife number two moved into a house on South High Street in Columbus in 1950. Remember, North High Street is where Kelly Prosser was last seen. Jarrell and his second wife filed for a divorce in West Virginia that was granted in 1953, but no record is on file of this divorce, so the reasons cited are unknown. There isn't much on the record about Jarrell at this time, although it is known that he had more kids in Ohio with another woman he wasn't married to. He married his third wife in March 1976, and by October, she was granted a divorce decree for gross neglect of duty. There are holes in the timeline of Jarrell's locations and activities after this time. We know that he worked at a Columbus-area radio station for many of the years spanning the 1970s and 80s. There was a five-year period when he was in prison, which we'll discuss. And he was known to have spent some time in Houston in the 70s. He was also in California, Kentucky, Ohio, Arkansas, Massachusetts, Tennessee, and Nevada at various points. Now, let's talk about Jarrell's record. This is from the fifth floor, quote, We have been contacted by several people and made aware that he molested or attempted to molest various women around the country years before he abducted and murdered Kelly Ann Prosser. Many never reported this abuse. The Columbus investigators feel that there are probably still more victims of Harold Jarrell who remain unknown. He victimized women and children wherever he went, and this is visible in his record. His first offense on record was assault and battery in Columbus, but dates and details are unknown. In 1954, he was arrested for assault and battery of a minor child in Boston. In 1961, he was arrested in Memphis for aiding and abetting prostitution. In 1968, he was arrested in Little Rock for disturbing the peace. In 1971, he was arrested for felonious assault, which was classified as, quote, being out of a sex offense in Columbus. There is a gap in the arrest records from 1971 to 1977. It is possible that he spent some time in jail or overseas, but the records are unclear. And then a really serious crime that resulted in a conviction. In September 1977, Jarrell was arrested for the rape of an 8-year-old girl in Columbus. On September 10th, the victim and a 10-year-old friend were approached by Jarrell while they were sitting on a wall at a market in the Tamarack Circle area. He offered them cash to hand out flyers, and the 8-year-old got into his car when he told her they were going to look at some ponies. He then forced oral sex on her, gave her $20, and dropped her off where he had picked her up. Her sister saw the car's license plate, police arrested him, and his victim ID'd him in a photo lineup. He was also linked to a report of another event which took place just an hour prior to this sexual assault. This time, Jarrell pulled into the driveway of a 12-year-old girl and asked her for directions. She approached the car, and he reached out and touched her, and she saw that he was exposing himself. She called her father, and Jarrell quickly drove away. Jarrell was charged in October 1977 for the sexual assault. He was released on bail. The indictment by the grand jury charges that he abducted and forcibly deprived the child of her liberty for the purposes of oral sex. Then, in March 1978, Jarrell was arrested in Delaware County for disorderly conduct on an unrelated incident. He was still out on bail on the sexual assault. In May, he pleaded guilty to gross sexual imposition, a lesser crime, for the sexual assault of the eight-year-old. 
He was sentenced to two to five years in the Chillicothe Correctional Institute and a $2,500 fine. This is where the Kelly Ann Prosser case is particularly chilling. Harold Jarrell was released from an Ohio prison in January 1982. He returned to Columbus and snatched, raped, and killed Kelly just eight months later. Clearly, he had learned from the 1977 case that he could not allow his next victim to remain alive. Detectives were unable to determine where the then 53-year-old Jarrell was during the months between his release from prison and his murder of Kelly. They did discover that his nephew lived within a mile of Kelly, although no one knows whether Jarrell and his relative were in contact or even had a relationship at all. This nephew had kids in Kelly's age group who may have attended her same school. But no concrete connection was ever established. Jarrell was estranged from most of his family who had denounced him as a bad seed, so it does not seem likely he was in contact with his nephew. His own daughter and ex-wife in Georgia told detectives that they knew next to nothing about him and said they maybe talked to him once a year. Investigators have not been able to determine what kind of vehicle Jarrell was driving at the time either. Of course, we are all interested in whether he drove a red truck like that described by the female witness, but we just don't know. Detective Kroom told me that he thinks it is probable that this sighting was indeed Jarrell and Kelly. It seems too coincidental that on the day Kelly was abducted, a little girl was screaming, don't touch me, way out in a rural area outside Columbus. It was quite a distance from where Kelly was found, but Jarrell might have been driving around looking for a surreptitious place to leave her. Especially if he feared someone had overheard her screaming, he might have moved on to the area where she was found the next day. Anyway, after he killed Kelly, Jarrell stayed in the Columbus area. He was scheduled to be MC at a country music festival in Carroll, Ohio, just three weeks after her murder. Remember, he worked at a radio station. Detective Kroom told me he was surprised that they couldn't find any additional serious crimes Jarrell committed in the area after 1983. His last known Ohio crime was a 1985 OVI and hit skip. The fifth floor reports that the Jarrell family was extremely cooperative with investigators. They had cut ties with him, they said, because he was not a good person. This seems like an understatement. Jarrell's only son was killed in a single car crash in 1986 caused by speeding. After this accident, Jarrell was interviewed by a local paper and said he hadn't seen his son in 10 years. Not even his closest flesh and blood wanted anything to do with him. Besides Kelly's case, there is no forensic evidence tying Jarrell to any other crimes in Columbus. Columbus PD has notified law enforcement in all the states where they knew Jarrell spent time of his role in the murder of Kelly Ann Prosser. If they have any other open cases with victims who fit Jarrell's M.O., they may be able to link him to those unsolved crimes. You might be wondering why the investigators on Kelly's case in 1982 didn't look into Ohio prison records to see if any child sex offenders had recently been released from incarceration. If they had, they might have noticed that Jarrell had sexually assaulted a little girl, served five years, and been released just eight months before Kelly was taken. But back then, all this stuff wasn't computerized. Thousands of felons were released annually, and all the records would have had to have been poured over by hand. It just didn't happen. The cooperation of Jarrell's family was instrumental in making the definitive determination that he was Kelly's killer. Here's what happened. In August of 1996, Jarrell had traveled from Ohio to Vegas to gamble, as he liked to do. But while he was there, he checked himself into the hospital and told doctors that he had been feeling ill even before he left his home state. 
He died of natural causes on August 12th at 9.29 p.m. I've never been able to establish exactly what illness actually killed him. Jarrell's mother paid to have him brought back to Ohio where he was cremated. So there was no way to obtain his DNA. No samples remained at the Nevada coroner's office. I don't even know that an autopsy was conducted. Investigators had to obtain his DNA from someone else to try to match it with the profile taken from Kelly. They visited Jarrell's daughter in Georgia, who, along with her mother, Jarrell's former wife, willingly gave samples after some encouragement by the daughter's husband, who pointed out that she would be giving closure to the family of a dead little girl. The match was confirmed by the BCI lab on June 22nd of 2020. It was conclusive that Harold Warren Jarrell had killed Kelly Ann Prosser. Investigators drove straight to Linda's to tell her the news. Sergeant Terry McConnell in the CPD cold case unit said at the press conference, quote, The best part of all of it, once we learned that information, was being able to go and speak with Kelly's mother and her sister and let them at least know what had happened. It was unfortunate we were unable to bring him to justice, but giving them the answer. Detective Dana Kroom, who took over the case in 2014 and saw it through to its conclusion, later said that he couldn't believe it when we got the match. I was numb, and I teared up a little bit. Harold Jarrell was totally unknown to Kelly's family. They had never seen him or heard of him. So it remains totally unknown how Kelly's and Jarrell's paths crossed on September 20th, 1982. Was Jarrell the man in the red truck that the female witness saw that day? Was he out trolling for a child to take, or did he just happen upon Kelly walking alone? How did he get Kelly into his vehicle without attracting attention? And why did he dump her in that cornfield in an area so far from the abduction site? We just don't know. And we have to accept that we may never have answers to these questions. The fifth floor calls Harold Warren Jarrell a serial predator and monster, and I agree. At the press conference announcing the closure of the Kelly Prosser case, Sergeant McConnell spoke for everyone who worked the case over the years about the impact it had had on them. They never gave up, inspired and motivated by Linda, Kelly's mom. McConnell said, quote, Kelly's mom has stayed a very close part of this investigation. The entire time, every detective who has worked on this case received cards, letters and notes from her that's always contained pictures of Kelly. Deputy Chief Bodker said that investigators never gave up on Kelly, but he acknowledged that without the science, her case might have been unsolved. He said, quote, This appears to be a true stranger abduction. Without the work of the genealogist, Mr. Jarrell may not have been linked to this case. Kelly's family did not attend the press conference. Emotions were just too raw for them to want to appear publicly. They asked that a prepared statement be read on their behalf. Here are some excerpts. For almost 38 years, our family has spoken for the one who was silenced and whose young life was cut short, Kelly Ann Prosser. When Kelly Ann left for school the morning of September 20th, 1982, we did not expect our time with her would abruptly end or that our future would change in every way imaginable. One moment we had this dazzling, mischievous eight-year-old little girl. Then suddenly, all we had left were memories, photographs that will never age, a calendar marking a dreadful new holiday, a grave, and pieces of Kelly's life stored in a box. Our family has spent many long years waiting for Kellyanne's murder to be solved, but Kelly's family is not unique. Those who have suffered the murder of their loved one knows how devastating waiting for answers can be. Today is one of those bittersweet moments that has been a long time coming. Our family is blessed to have finally gotten an answer after nearly four decades on who abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered our darling Kelly Ann. 
While new technology, advanced investigative techniques, and other factors have been an undeniable part of solving this homicide case, the real credit goes to all the local, state, federal, and partnering law enforcement agencies who showed tenacity, dedication, and tremendous teamwork in solving Kelly Ann's case. There are no words to express how deeply our gratitude extends to all of you. Your perseverance and determination, your caring and professional manner, your patience, diligence, and sacrifices have not gone unnoticed. Kelly Ann was our beauty and our love. She sparkled with laughter, and her blooming spirit shined amidst the thorns. Her light has been, and will always be, deeply missed. Today and forever, family and friends will remember our precious little girl. May Kelly Ann, now in the arms of her beloved grandmothers Rose and Eleanor, rest in peace. After 38 years, Kelly Ann Prosser's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. I'd like to thank Columbus Cold Case Homicide Unit Detective Dana Kroom for talking with me about this case. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNAID Podcast on Instagram, at DNAID Podcast on Twitter, and at DNAID Podcast on Facebook. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons.